Galatians 3:23 through 4:7. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I mean that I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Abba, Father. So you are no longer slave, but a son. And if, and a, if a son, then an heir through God, the word of the Lord. Good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, we are continuing our series through the, uh, the book of Galatians. And we are really right in the middle of what I would call the doctrinal heart of this letter. Um, chapters 2 and 3 are just incredibly dense with um, a lot of incredible truth. And, uh, and, and, it, and I'm going to tell you, it makes some challenging preaching um, because it's really, at this point, Paul is saying, this is stuff you need to know, not stuff you need to do. He'll get to the do stuff later. He always starts with know this and then do this. We're in the know this section. And so that means that we are still in that portion of the, of, the, uh, of the letter where our sermons are going to be a little bit more teachy than preachy. Um, we're going to spend a lot of time sitting in the text. And, um, and, and this morning's, honestly, is kind of the heart of these two chapters. Um, the last two sermons, if you've joined us for those, really led up till the point that we're covering today, and the following two are going to flow from it. This is like the heart or the point, the main point that he's making. So I'm going to encourage you, keep your Bibles open on your laps, okay? Um, pull out a pen. Feel free to write in your Bibles. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's a great practice because it helps you remember things and, and things like that. If you don't have a Bible, um, feel free to grab one of our, um, our pew Bibles, one of the Bibles underneath the chairs, and grab it and, and take it as your own. It's our gift to you. And uh, you can personalize it this morning by taking a few notes in the margins as we dig in, okay? So we're going to be going kind of verse by verse through this section um, to unpack the meaning and, and get at it. Here's the thing. At the heart of this passage is the tension between two ways of living. And it's kind of the two ways of living we've been uh, exploring over the last couple of weeks. We're either going to approach God through religion, through performance, or we're going to approach God through grace. And I'm going to tell you, approaching God through grace is one of the least intuitive things you will ever do. It is not easy to approach God through grace because everything in us is wired to be religious. And what I mean by that is everything in us is wired to perform, to measure up, to achieve, to earn. And that's because every human relationship we've ever had basically communicates that to us. When we're attractive, then we're loved. When we measure up, then we're accepted. When we perform, then we are um, told we're okay. And if, we're, if, if we don't measure up, if we're unlovable, unattractive, 
um, we're unloved. And we see this in, in every human relationship to one degree or another. Right? There's no way around that because in human relationships, uh, uh, we are flawed. We're not God. And, and so as a result, there is a piece that our love is very selfish. Right? I love people because I find them lovable. So there's a piece of that which basically says, I love you because you do something for me. You are something for me that I like, right? So a, a God of unconditional love is so unintuitive. We just don't get it. And so it makes it difficult for us to engage Him because we want to take what we know about love and import it onto God. Let me give you an example. I have a friend, um, a, a person that I met in St. Louis uh, who is, does foster care. Uh, we have a number of families here at Trailhead who are involved in the foster care process. They open up their homes to foster kids. Um, and many of them have actually moved from being foster parents to adoptive parents. And, and I'm just going to tell you that is incredibly beautiful. Okay, what a, what a practical, powerful expression of the love of the gospel. When, when we open up our homes to those in our community that are um, most needy, right? James says, perfect religion is taking care of the orphans and widows. And, and that's what it means by that is it's the perfect expression of, of unconditional love. And so it's a beautiful thing. And, and this woman in St. Louis, um, she actually opens up her homes. It's her whole family, but she's kind of the driving force behind it. She opens up her home to the most difficult uh, of those in the foster care system, the ones that often usually can't find placement, and that would be teenage boys, boys that have been bounced around the system for a long period of time. Teenage boys can be incredibly difficult after they've come through the foster care system because they have learned a number of adaptive habits, behaviors, attitudes that make it very difficult for them to be integrated into a family. Um, think about it. I mean, they tend to be, uh, sometimes they come in with hoarding and, and stealing habits. Why? Because the idea of having something that's personally mine is always threatened. And what you have is, is removed from you. And so they can, they can come in, and, and, and it's not uncommon to find them hiding food or stealing things from the house and hiding them in their bedroom. Sometimes they come in and often come in emotionally guarded, like they have put up walls of self-protection. It's very, very hard to get through that. And so what ends up happening is they either put up a manipulative, friendly face or a hostile face. Neither one of those are, are their genuine face. They're both just as hard to get through because what they're trying to do ultimately is protect their heart from hurt. And what they're saying is, I'm going to get as much out of this as I can before you reject me, or I'm going to be preemptively hostile so that you reject me quickly, because I know that's where it's going to end. And so they become more aggressive for the purpose of actually spurring you into rejecting them, um, because they, they just assume that's where it's going to end. These guys are incredibly difficult to work with. And this young woman, not this young woman, this small woman, has had tremendous success working with this demographic coming out of the foster care system. It's, it's um, very unusual um, that she has had so much success. In fact, when she was telling us about it, she was surrounded by some of the young men that, that had come into her home, um, had been her foster kids, many of whom had actually been legally adopted by her. Um, these, most of these kids were no longer kids. Um, these guys were like six foot tall and surrounded her. Um, she was probably the most protected woman in St. Louis because these guys love her fiercely, very protective of her. And, uh, and, and she says that, that in essence, the key to her success is very simple, although not very easy. The key to her success very simply is she has to convince them that she loves them. If she can do that, everything else will take care of itself. She has to convince them that she loves them. 
And so they'll come in and, and, and she'll give them the tour around the house. And she'll say, this is your home and this is your space. Now, this isn't soft, sentimental love, gushy love that's all about, oh, I'm just going to love you and you're going to love me. This is, you know, this is your space. This is not your space, right? These are your things. These are not your things, right? This is, this is the timeout space. Hilarious. She has steps. That's her timeout space. I love the image of these guys coming in, 14, 15-year-old, big guys sitting on the steps in timeout. But that's her, uh, that's her form of discipline. Um, this is the timeout space where we demonstrate love through discipline. And, um, and these guys come in, and essentially what she does is day in and day out, very simply say, this is the last home you'll ever come to if you choose to stay. This is the last home you will ever come to if you choose to stay. You do not have to perform to be accepted. You do not have to be measured up. You don't have to measure up to be loved. I love you because I choose to. The hardest thing, the ones that actually stick and make it, are the ones that believe her. The ones that don't, never believe her. They just won't accept it. The idea that they could be loved unconditionally. That's a beautiful picture to me of the gospel. Because the reality is, I think a lot of us struggle with the very simple concept that God loves us unconditionally. That God loves us based on His choice and His performance for us instead of our choice and our performance for Him. And what's happening in Galatia is is that Paul came in and he planted this church. He preached the gospel. These guys became believers. They're his spiritual children. And he left, and, and following him in were these false teachers. And these guys came in, and basically they tried to hijack the church. And they did it by preaching um, a, a distorted gospel. They came in, and they, they weren't saying, you know, Jesus isn't the Messiah. They came in and said, oh, yeah, Jesus is the Messiah. Believe in Jesus. But if you want to be a varsity Christian, if you want to be an A-class Christian, you need to not only believe in Jesus, you need to obey these rules. You need to graduate from faith to obedience. You need to, to, to move from trusting Jesus to performing for Jesus. And by the way, this is how you do that. <laughs> uh, false teachers always have a great way of filling in the blanks, right? This is what it means to actually obey Jesus. You need to be circumcised. You, know, you need to obey these Jewish holidays, months, years, um, uh, ceremonies, and you need to obey the law, right? But if you do that, if you do that, then you're actually going to move into the fullness of then you're actually going to start experiencing the power of your faith. Then you're actually going to graduate. You'll actually make God happy. It's an incredibly seductive message. Now, today, we don't have a lot of Judaizers coming around, a lot of people coming into church preaching circumcision. That's a little off uh, culturally for us, um, uh, primarily because pretty much all the dudes are already circumcised, and we have absolutely no religious affiliation with that. But that doesn't mean that we don't have the same spirit of religion attacking our churches today. People basically coming in and saying, believe in Jesus, now obey these rules. Believe in Jesus, now perform in these ways. If you really want God to be happy with you, you'll know these truths. If you really want to impress God, you need to obey these rules. You need to perform in these ways. And what ends up happening is that we end up enslaving ourselves to a system that tortures us. We end up wedding ourselves to a way of thinking about God that God never asked us 
to approach him through. We, we come like one of those foster kids and import onto God our previous experiences and assume that God relates to us like everyone else in the world has. When I perform, then I'll be accepted. So Paul's going to combat that. He's going to give us some, some insight into um, uh, how we're supposed to deal with that. So starting in verse 23, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. Now he's speaking in a historical redemptive sense. And you guys say, what does that even mean? That means what he's talking about is, is like the broad picture of redemptive history. God is telling a story, right? That story began when he spoke the world into existence. And God hasn't stopped telling that story, right? God is a great storyteller. And, and through the drama and the tension and the conflict and the beauty of creation, God is telling a grand story that is about rebellion and redemption, right? And ultimately, mankind rebelled against God, and God is not going to be put off by that. He is going to step into that rebellion and redeem His glory in creation for His glory and our good, right? So God is telling this story. And part of that story was the giving of the law, the Old Testament law. Now, the Old Testament law is represented by, um, it's made up of, of hundreds and hundreds of commandments, but it's represented by the Ten Commandments, very familiar to us. The idea of those ten very simple rules, right? Um, and a lot of people, honestly, I think, approach those Ten Commandments as if they were the measure of morality, which they are. They, they are an expression of God's holy character. But a lot of people approach them like, if I could just obey these Ten Commandments, then God will be happy with me. Right? If I can just become a little bit more moral in these ways, then God will be happy with me. And, and, and so we should have post these Ten Commandments in all the public places so that people are reminded of all the ways God wants them to obey to make Him happy, right? But notice what Paul says about this. He doesn't say that these things are moral examples or that these are guidelines to impressing God. What he says is that we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. So Paul compares the law to a prison guard and a guardian, okay? A uh, prison guard sounds a little worse than guardian, but as we unpack, you're going to see that neither one of them are real great, okay? Um, the prison guard idea. Essentially, what was happening is, is these Judaizers, the false teachers, were coming in, and what they were saying was, you need to build these fences around your morality, you need to build these fences around your home, around your family, right? So, so um, what that essentially means is, is that uh, once we put up these walls of expectations, be circumcised, wear this kind of clothing, speak these kind of words, only eat this food, only drink this drink, we, you know, we take our cultural understanding and we turn them into issues of holiness, right? So, so um, uh, this is the way real Christians dress. This is the way real Christians talk. This is the way real Christians measure up and know each other, right? And what you do is you build this fence, and everybody inside this fence is part of the happy, holy family, and everybody outside of the fence is part of the unhappy heathens, right? These guys are the, 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 the wicked. They're, they're out there. So we build these fences to protect us, to keep us in and keep them out. What Paul says is you're building a fence. The problem is the fence is made out of, out of electric uh, wire, and it's topped with, with razor wire, and it is not a fence of protection for you. It is a prison in which you are enslaving yourself. Because here's the problem. There's a fundamental error in religious thinking. Religious thinking basically says the source of corruption is out there. And if I can just guard myself, if I can just guard my family, if I can just guard my kids from that thing out there, then they'll be okay. 
then they'll be able to measure up. Then they'll be able to obey. Then they'll be able to, 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 to. The problem is, Scripture tells us the source of corruption isn't out there. It's in here. It's in my heart, and it's in yours. There's a brokenness within us that we inherited from our, our first father, because he rebelled against God, we inherited that rebellion. And that rebellion is, is, a, is an angsty, powerful, rebellious force in our life. And when you put up those walls in the name of protection, you are enslaving yourself with a wild animal. You're putting yourself into a tight little cage. And the law comes along and doesn't comfort you. The law comes along and prods you. Like a, like a mean prison guard. Every time he walks by, he makes sure that you are not resting. He hits the cage. He prods you. Every time he walks by, he reminds you, you don't measure up. You're not good enough. You don't obey well enough. And what ends up happening when we put ourselves under the law is that we go into the cycle of condemnation and pride. Condemnation because we're not good enough and we don't measure up. Pride because we get a, an artificial view of ourselves. Nobody can live under the full condemnation of the law without deluding themselves in some way. So what we do is we end up inflating our strengths and deflating our weaknesses. And we start looking at the things where we think we're strong and feeling really good about ourselves and ignoring the things where we don't measure up because they make us feel bad about ourselves. And then they make us feel prideful because we compare our strengths to other people's weaknesses. And meanwhile, that prison is getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. You guys, in that prison is no freedom. There's no joy. There's no delight. It is misery and performance and drudgery. And in the end, condemnation. The law can only do one thing. Condemn. It basically says, do this, and when you don't, I will crush you, and you won't. You'll never be able to do it perfectly. You'll never be able to measure up. So what he's saying to the Galatians is, really, you want to go back to that? In the name of protecting yourself, you want to enslave yourself? Not only is it a prison guard, it's compared to a guardian. Guardian doesn't sound as bad. That actually sounds kind of good until you understand how it actually fit into Roman society. Um, Romans were not as obsessed with their kids as we are. I don't, know if you know, I don't know if you realize this. We're kind of weird with how obsessed we are with our children. I mean, seriously, um, we don't need to see 1,500 Instagram pictures of your children every day. Um, but I do the same thing. I love my kids absolutely delight in my kids. And there's nothing wrong with that. But we get so obsessed with our kids that we tend to, tend to start measuring our success by the success of our kids. If they're attractive, we're better off. If they're successful, I'm more successful, right? We live through our kids and, and we have this sense in which um, we're, we're better if our kids are better. You know, nobody drives around with a bumper sticker that says, my kid is average, Yes, you know what I'm saying? That doesn't happen. It's always honor roll, or my kid can beat up your kid, or my kid's dad can beat up your dad. Somehow we're going to find some way, even if my kid gets bad grades, he's got to be better than your kid in some way, right? We're constantly doing that. Well, the Romans weren't as obsessed with, with their kids, honestly. They didn't, they didn't have an idolatry about their family. And so what ended up happening is as soon as a kid was born, he was handed off to a wet nurse, and a wet nurse basically would take care of feeding and caring for an infant. And when the child got old enough to be weaned, they'd be handed off to a nanny. And a nanny's job was basically to take care of the needs of the child, make sure they were fed, make sure they didn't hurt themselves. When they got to about six years old, they were handed off to a guardian. 
The guardian's job was to make sure that that kid didn't make a fool of the family. The guardian's job was to make sure that that kid didn't do something so stupid it was irreparable. And so what ended up happening is the guardian tended to be like the most unpleasant, meanest middle school teacher you could ever imagine. Like they're the ones that demand you do it perfectly. And when you don't, they come by with the ruler and smack your knuckles, right? That was not good enough. It's my best. I don't care. The guardian was continually putting forward standards that simply were uh, unattainable and then abusing the kids when they couldn't attain them. Why? Because they wanted those kids to be more afraid of them than they were attracted to fun. That made their job easier, right? If the kids were more afraid of them than they were attracted to fun, they weren't going to be out there getting into trouble, right? So Paul is saying, look, when you put yourself back under the law, it's like going back to prison. It's like going back to middle school, and putting yourself back under the tutelage of the worst teacher you've ever had, the one that was mean and angsty and abused you. You really want to go there? Because you do. The Galatians did. You go back. See, when we go back to performing for God, we put ourselves back under the authority of abusive masters. The ones that remind us you don't measure up, you stink, you'll never succeed. He compares that, this whole way of the law, to the way of promise. And we see an interesting way he does that. Look at verse 23 where he says, now before faith came, that's an interesting phrase. I mean, who actually came, you guys? Right? We know, right? Sunday school lesson, anytime the teacher asks, the answer is always Jesus, right? Yeah, who actually came? Jesus. Why does he say before faith came? That's weird because what Paul is doing is he's actually comparing the way we relate to law to the way we relate to promise. How do you relate to law, right? When your boss shows up and says, this is what I want you to do, you obey. And if you don't obey, what happens? You get punished, right? Maybe you get fired. Do you guys ever see Office Space? It's a great movie, <laughs> Right? Are you aware that we're putting cover sheets on the TPS reports? Did you get the memo? I'll have to resend you the memo. Would you? Yeah, it would be good if you would put the cover on the TPS report. See, the punishment there was you had to actually listen to that guy talk longer if you didn't do what he said. And you could never do what he said because everything that he said was always changing, right? So the law comes in and basically says perform or be punished. Promise comes in, on the other hand, and says believe. What is the only proper response to a promise? Not performance. Faith. See, a promise inherently says, I will do something for you. I will give you something. And the only proper response to a promise is faith. You guys, the gospel is a promise. The good news about what Jesus has done is not advice about how we fix ourselves for God. It is good news about what God has done to fix us where we couldn't fix ourselves. And it calls us to respond in faith. And I'm telling you right now, that is a non-intuitive response for us. It's harder for you than you know it is. It really is. You're like, no, dude, I'm a believer. I've been a believer for years. Then it's probably even harder for you because you've gotten used to how you don't respond in faith and you've called it faith. That's what's happening, you guys. They're trying to, to say, this is how I please God, by actually doing the very thing God's telling them not to do, going back to performance. It's a non-intuitive way of approaching 
God. So faith is this response that says you're trustworthy. Faith is this response that says, I see your character and I hear your promise and I am provoked to rest in who you are and what you said. The law says do. The promise says trust. So it's a fundamentally different approach. And what Paul is saying is, look, man, before faith came, before the promise, the fulfillment of faith came, the law had a role in redemptive history. There was a period of time in which, which God worked with the nation of Israel through the law to demonstrate to them, to show them how religious their heart was, how naturally they ran to performance instead of trust. But faith has now come. The law is now over, right? Verse 25, verse 24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified, declared right before God by faith, not performance, by Christ's record, not our own. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are now all sons of God through faith. That is an incredibly radical statement. The holy, righteous, sovereign God of the universe looks at you and says, when you believe in Jesus, you're my son. You're like, wait a minute, dude, there's two genders. I know, I'll get to that in a sec, okay? But, but he says, you're my son. You're a member of my family. I love you, right? It's like that five-foot-something woman looking at that six-foot boy and saying to him, this is your home forever, if you want it to be. You have a place here that you didn't earn. You have a place here that you can't lose because it's given to you as a gift, not as a result of something you've earned. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. What that means is the enmity is not just removed. It's not just that Jesus pays for our sin and takes away the penalty. He actually gives us his record and invites us into the family. So when we come into the presence of God, God sees Jesus. Jesus' record, Jesus' obedience, Jesus' beauty. We are sons of God through faith. For as many as of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Baptism is a, um, you guys know we did this a couple weeks ago. Baptism is a, is a, a rite that we do. It's an it's a ordinance. Uh, it's a way of obe- obeying Jesus um, where we take somebody, we dip them under the water, and we bring them back out, right? And, and that's full of symbolism, right? In the same way Jesus died and came back to life, followers of Jesus die and come back to life. They died who they were outside of Christ, and they are now alive in, in, in Christ, right? So they go into the water, in, in a sense, symbolically in their old identity. They are immersed, which got hold you long enough, you die, right? That's the realm of death. And then you're brought back to life um, in a new identity, with a new name, a new record, right? And, and that name is Jesus, and the record is Christ's. Now, baptism itself doesn't actually do anything. It's just a celebration of what takes place spiritually when we believe in Jesus. Because when we believe in Jesus, 
We are baptized into Jesus spiritually, immersed into Jesus, covered in Jesus. His righteousness, His holiness, His obedience, all the ways that we don't measure up and He does, covers us, right? Here's the thing. We all immerse ourselves in something for our identity. And naturally, we are going to try to immerse ourselves in our performance for God. We will try to immerse ourselves and come out with an identity that says, look, I do measure up. I did perform. I I did obey. I did overcome. I am attractive. And the way of faith calls us out of the way of law. The way of faith basically tells us to leave that identity of performance dead, buried. So as we go through life, it's not about me proving myself. It's not about me defending myself. It's not about me accomplishing anything for myself. It is me very simply living out of the acceptance I already have in Christ. A new identity, a new record, baptized into Christ and have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This is a, a revolutionary, countercultural assertion. During this culture, um, socioeconomic divisions were not simply issues of implied status. <laughs> People with more money had more power. People with more money had greater respect because they saw that actually as a greater level of God's blessing. People who had more money were more blessed by God. So obviously they were closer to God, holier, better, right? Um, Gender was not just an issue of of, um, role. It was was an issue of status. During this period of time, um, young Jewish men were taught to pray. Thank you, Lord, that I am not a Gentile, a heathen, or a woman. It's an offensive prayer to us, but that that reflects the, the character of this period of time where the men really did believe they were not just by power, but by right better off. Paul flies in the face of those cultural assumptions. Paul offends everybody. And here's the thing, you guys. Uh, The gospel is the universal offender. If you've never been offended by the gospel, you've probably never actually heard it. Everybody at one point or another is going to get offended by this message because all of us at one point or another don't think right and need to be corrected. And Paul is putting a corrective out there, basically saying, you, just because you're a man, just because you're a Jew, just because you are a slave owner, or because you're wealthy, you don't have greater access to God. You don't have a greater right to God's presence. You do not have preeminence over others. It's a radical statement that everybody has equal access to grace, because everybody is in need of grace. It's not based on performance or status or the way people look at things. It's based purely on the performance of Christ on our behalf. And and the natural result of that is that since everyone's in need of grace, everybody has free access to grace. Now, here's what I want to correct a little bit on this, because this verse is, is often quoted today out of context. People who have no idea what the book of Galatians is about will take this verse and start quoting it um, for their social or political agendas. And here's what I want to throw out there. Paul is not saying there isn't a difference here. So, so take the Jew and Gentile. In the early church, was he saying that there should be a homogenized culture 
where the Jews were no longer Jews and the Gentiles were no longer Gentiles. And they should come together and create a new Christian subculture. And that new Christian subculture was to be the universal culture of the church. Is that what he was saying? Absolutely not. He was saying Jews are going to be Jews and and Greeks are going to be Greeks. What's removed is not the difference in culture, but the hostility between the cultures. The differences are no longer sources of competitiveness and conflict. Jews and Greeks, equal access, one in Christ. Slave and free. He wasn't um, saying at that point that every slave needed to be freed. There were elements... And we culturally, we, we find slavery abhorrent because of our history, and I think that's appropriate. There were elements of slavery during this period of time that actually resembled much more like long-term employment contracts where people might be indentured servants or, or they may um, become bond slaves where they actually give up their freedom for a period of time in exchange for a certain amount of money. Right? And so they would actually sell themselves. It's a way of giving their labor for an economic gain. Right? So there were elements of slavery during this period of time that were less abhorrent than what our historical understanding, our historical understanding of slavery is that it's all dehumanizing. And it can be inherently abusive. But not every aspect of slavery has always been inherently evil. Right? And, and so he's not saying that all slavery is, is now wrong. What he's saying is there's no difference between a slave and a freeman. When you come to the table to worship God, you come as equals. When you come and sing songs of worship, one will not be singing and the other serving. You come as brothers. You come as equals, right? There's a a letter in the New Testament called Philemon where Paul actually wrote to a slave owner whose slave, Onesimus, um, robbed from him and ran away. Um, This dude like stole something and then disappeared, was jetting. He was going to disappear. And while he was leaving... Um, just happened to run into Paul in, in Rome and hear the gospel, and Onesimus became a believer in Jesus. And so Paul discipled Onesimus about what it meant to be a follower of Jesus and eventually agreed that, that it was actually the right thing for him to go back to Philemon, who was a believer, and restore what he had stolen and honor him instead of robbing from him. So he's sending Onesimus back to his slave master. And nowhere in the letter does he say you have to free him. What he does say is you have to treat him like a brother. You can't treat him as if you were better or intrinsically more valuable. You must treat him now as a brother in Christ. Now, that message, by the way, becomes the unraveling of the foundation of slavery, as we see takes place in the Western world. Now, what about gender, male and female? See, I don't think he's saying that there are no longer genders in the church. He's not saying that the church now is this androgynous uh, thing where, where there are simply no differences. What he's saying is that we're both equal, men and women. Though we have different roles, though we are wired differently, we are equal before God and equal in our access to grace. So it's a radical message that we all need grace, and grace is available. And in fact, verse 29, slave, free, Jew, Gentile, male, female. And if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You have no advantage because of your genetic lineage, your gender, your socioeconomic standing. If it comes by promise, it can only be taken by faith. And if we're all slaves to grace, we all come on equal footing. We're all beggars 
who need bread. None of us can say, look, I have the bread and you don't. Everything we have has been given to us. And so it creates this, this humbling, unifying factor in this new community that we call the church, the body of Christ. Now, in chapter 4, Paul's going to change gears a little bit. And he's going to be, instead of talking about um, the tension we have personally relating to God either through religion or through grace, he's going to talk a little bit about redemptive history and his tension in delivering grace. So starting in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave. He's speaking again of that childhood phase where a, a son would be placed under a guardian, under a tutor, and he would be told what to do. He would be uh, managed. He would have, in a sense, all the authority of being an owner, but none of the freedom of being an owner. And what he's saying is that in redemptive history, during the period of time when the Mosaic law was actually in force, the nation of Israel was under a tutor. It was under a guardian. Okay? There was a sense in which during that period of time, God had, had placed it um, under the, this guardianship of the law, not to make it better, but to actually show Israel how much more they needed grace, right? Verse 2, but he is under the guardians and the managers until the date set by the Father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, that phrase, elementary principles of the world, man, totally loaded. We'll unpack it more next week because Paul actually gets into it in this next section quite a bit. What he's saying is that during that period of time, we come under the law, We are enslaving ourselves. Like the slave master or the guardian now uses a third image, the elementary principles of the world, which really has, um, I believe, an allusion to spiritual warfare um, and to um, uh, forces that that would seek to destroy us. Uh, But we'll unpack that more next week. Verse 4, but when the fullness of time has come, so in the redemptive scope of history, When the perfect time came, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. There's been a lot of talk about what it means, the fullness of time. Because really what he's saying is when you look at history, there came a point when when just the perfect time came. When the perfect moment came, then God broke in and sent His Son. And the Son, the Creator of all things, became one of His creation. The eternal Son of God became Jesus the human and and was born and lived a human life and lived the life we deserved or we should have lived and died the death we deserved to die and rose again in our place. At just the right moment, He sent Him. There's been a lot of debate about what makes the perfect right moment. What does, that, what does it mean, the fullness of time? Why, why was that, right? If we say Jesus was born in about 4 BC, why was that the fullness of time? And commentators are like, well, you had Pax Romana, which was the peace of Rome that allowed the spread of the gospel. You had the building of these incredible road systems throughout the whole known world at that time, which allowed people to travel freely. You had Greek as the central language, which allowed people to speak freely in different communities in different ways. And I'm not saying those things don't play a role. I don't know. He doesn't describe it, but I think we're kind of missing the point. We're trying to find the externals that make the, the fullness of time. What it means is that... It, yeah, let, me, let me put it this way. I have a friend, and some of you know him. His name is TJ. Um, he's pretty well known around Edwardsville. He's one of the friendliest guys on the face of the earth. He and his wife adopted a little girl from China. And they adopted her long before they were able to go get her. And they loved her. 
And they were longing for the fullness of time that would signal their ability to go get their daughter. And they waited and they waited. And there were political things that had to come in line and economic things that had to come in line. But they very recently were able to go pick up their daughter. When the fullness of time came, See, I think this speaks of God's anticipation of adoption. God yearns for you. He longs for relationship with you, to delight in you and have you delight in Him as your Father. When the fullness of time came, man, when these guys went... All of their anticipation, all of their work, all of their hope, all of their joy came together in this incredible sending in which they were able to be sent across the ocean to get their girl. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. There's a sense in which God had been waiting all the way from Genesis chapter 3 for the moment that he would send his son that he might redeem his people and win them back. And in the same way, um, TJ and his wife had to spend tens of thousands of dollars to redeem their daughter, in a sense, to pay the redemption price. There were legal fees and adoption fees and travel fees, and there was time and discomfort and suffering that had to be paid in order for them to move into an adoption relationship with their daughter. God bore the full cost to adopt us. When the fullness of time came, he joyfully paid the price of redemption. And that included Jesus, the one who knew no sin, the perfect Son of God, becoming man. It included him living a life, a human life, a perfect obedience to his Father, the first human to do so ever for his entire life. And ultimately die the death we deserve to die, to die under the weight of our sin and to die under the curse of the law that he might redeem those who were under the curse and those who were under the weight of sin and deliver them into a freedom they could never claim for themselves. He took the full weight of redemption on himself in joy, it says. He, he, he looked ahead in hope to the joy that was set before him. Guys, I don't want you to read these words in a cold, academic way. Those of you who are deeply theological and you've studied all this stuff, Man, if these verses don't break your heart, you are missing it. I don't care how much you think you know about it, you don't know about it. This is the heart of God laid bare to man. And in its beauty, it's designed to break our hearts. It is a loving Father saying, this is your forever home. I have paid your redemption price. I accept you unconditionally and I've demonstrated it by paying the full price of redemption that you might be forgiven and approach me in grace. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Born of a woman, born under the law. An interesting side note here, um, 
the, it's popular today. There's a popular theory that says that, that basically Jesus became the Son of God uh, over the course of the early church, that in the beginning, um, Jesus was a good guy and, and, and a Messiah and somebody to be followed, but their understanding of his deity evolved over the period of the early church. Um, and they would point to things like um, John clearly stating his deity and then saying, well, in Mark, it's not as clearly stated. Um, there are certain things, <clears throat> none of the, the early writers, like the virgin birth, they would say that that was something that actually developed over time. They first decided that Jesus had to be God, and then later decided that since he was God, he had to be born of a virgin. The book of Galatians is, I believe, the first letter written in the New Testament. Um, I take an early date for it, and even if you take a late date, it's not that much later. Um, And we see right here, even though it's not, it wasn't Paul's purpose to teach the virgin birth, it wasn't his purpose to teach the preexistence of Christ. Both are implied. Both are assumed, in fact. In fact, he's basically saying, this is such common knowledge, I don't have to unpack this. I don't need to teach it more fully, right? When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, not created his son, right? He was already there, born of a woman. There was a very specific way that the son of God was going to enter into the creative history of this world, and it was through the agency of of a woman, right? A unique virgin birth, born under the law as a Jew who would live under the weight of the law, but fully obey the law, dying under its curse on our behalf so that he could deliver to us its blessing to redeem those who are under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Um, This is not simply a, a legal transaction. God looks at us and says, okay, now you're forgiven and you're part of the family. There's an inheritance that comes with that declaration. There is a blessing that comes with that status. And that inheritance, that blessing is in fact to be once again united with God, the source of life and all blessing, to be part of his family, to be adopted, fully adopted as sons. Why sons? Because again, in the Roman world, during this period of time, sons were the ones with status, They were the ones with the power. So if you had the name as a son of your father, you carried the authority of your father. There's an emphasis on sons here, not because men are better than women, but because in status, what he's saying is that whether you're a man or a woman, you carry the same authority. You get the same blessing. You have the same right. You carry the status son. And you are adopted. And the down payment of your inheritance is the indwelling spirit. When you believe in Jesus, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and He's going to indwell you, and He's going to do something really cool. <laughs> he's going to teach you how to cry out, Abba, Father. He's not going to like try to, to start with tweaking your behavior. He's not going to come in with rules and say, this is how you measure up, and this is how you obey, and this is how you perform. He's going to start by tweaking your heart. And the number one heartstring he's going to tweak is your ability to know you are loved. Remember what I told you about the woman who adopted those kids? The number one thing that made the difference, in fact, the only thing that made a difference for them, whether they would succeed or fail in that environment, was whether or not they would actually come to believe they were loved. If she could get them to believe they were loved, everything else came in line. The Spirit begins by, by beating that drum, by, by, by playing that tune, by molding that within us. 
by communicating to us in our deepest place, you are unconditionally loved. Yeah, but you don't know who I am. You are loved. You don't know what I did. You are loved. You don't know how I failed. You are loved. You don't know what was done to me. You are loved. And in being loved, you are free to love. You don't have to defend. You don't have to perform. You don't have to to build yourself up in pride or to cower under self-condemnation. You are loved. And when he leads our hearts to cry out, Abba, Father, it is a cry of delight. It is the deepest cry of joy. It is so much better than I measure up. I'm a success. I win. All of that becomes secondary. I win because I'm loved. I measure up because I'm loved. I don't need to defend myself because I am loved by God, the sovereign God of the universe. And when he approves of me, nothing else matters. When God says to me, I've made you right. I don't need you to tell me I am right. When God says to me, you are loved, I don't need you to tell me I am lovable. When God says to me, you are my man, you are a success because Christ succeeded in your place, I don't have to have my dad or my boss or whoever it is that I'm looking to define my success to tell me I'm a success before I can feel good about myself. It frees me from slavery to other people, to other measurements, to external standards, into the joy and delight of adoption and sonhood. He sends the Spirit into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. The word Abba is the first word that would be spoken by a child. It's very similar to our daddy. Now, I don't want you to think of it as infantile because it doesn't mean that we have to approach God like infants, but it does mean that we approach with the intimacy. In the same way that when you speak of your dad today, it's very different than speaking of your father. It usually speaks of relationship. If you've had a good relationship with your dad and you speak of your dad, you may be speaking to him face-to-face as an adult, but there is still that sense of affection, of intimacy. He leads us to speak of God, not only as our creator, but as our Abba. Do you know God is your Abba? Do you know what it is to have the sovereign God of the universe look at you and say to you, I delight in you? You don't have to earn it. You don't have to perform for it. Do you know what it is to know right now in this very moment that when God looks at you, He delights in you in the same way He delights in His Son? With all the fullness of joyful, playful, exuberant love. Kind of hard to believe, isn't it? It's a lot easier to believe that we have to earn it. It's a lot easier to believe that God's waiting for us to finally measure up, finally get our junk together, finally defeat that sin, finally stop doing those stupid things, finally uh, achieve, finally, which is like God's just, it's so much easier to think God's just waiting until we measure up. 
do you realize that when you allow that thought pattern to reside in your head, you are climbing back into the prison. You are going back to middle school. You are submitting yourself once again to a cruel taskmaster who will just beat you and fill you with pride and slam you with contempt. You're invited to grace, to know that you're delighted in, not because you've earned it, but because Christ earned it on your behalf. To know that you are, in fact, baptized into Christ, covered in Christ. Verse 7, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You guys, that's good news. And it's the kind of news that we have to keep telling ourselves over and over and over. Because it's not natural for us to believe it. It's not easy to rest in this stuff. (laughs) We have to continually bring this message of good news, this gospel, this incredible message of grace to bear on our behavior. Whenever we get defensive and we feel like we need to prove ourselves in front of others, we need to let the gospel come to bear on our hearts. I don't need to defend myself because God's declared me right. Whenever I feel like I have to succeed in order to measure up, whether it's at work or for a person to finally notice me, or I need to let the gospel come to bear on my heart. The God of the universe delights in me. I am free. It allows me to succeed without being puffed up and to fail without being destroyed. It allows me to follow him and whatever he asks me to do. This generation especially needs to hear this. It frees you not to fulfill your potential. We're so driven today. I was marked for greatness. I have to fulfill my potential. No. God has marked you as his son, and he simply asks you to be faithful. He'll probably let you fulfill your potential in some areas. He's going to leave others unfulfilled, and you'll discover those later. All he's really asking is for you to be faithful, to delight in his delight, to rest. Guys, we're going to go into a time of response. I'm going to put some questions on the screen and ask you to pray and do some business with God. Let His Spirit speak to you. And then we're going to share communion together after that. But first, let's take a look at these questions and just let them prompt your heart a little bit. Let's go ahead and put those questions up. Um, Do you see God through the lens of religious performance or of promise? Don't go to the next question yet. Think about this. When you think about God, do you perceive him as waiting for you to finally measure up before he gives you his approval? Do you feel like you have to earn his favor? Or do you recognize that he is a God who's given you a promise and he's simply asking you to have faith, to trust and to rest? Second question, where do you have a hard time resting in the promise? Because I guarantee you have somewhere. Where are you performing instead of resting? Where are you working instead of delighting? Thirdly, how are you feeding your faith by filling your vision with the one who is faithful? You guys, there's only one way we come to trust, and that's to grow in relationship. And God invites you to know him more, to get to know him, to move into relationship with him. And as you do, as you fill your vision with the one who is faithful, it actually strengthens your faith. It strengthens your ability to trust and to move into the freedom of the gospel and out of the slavery of religion and performance um, and and self-effort. How are you feeding your faith?
by filling your vision with the one who is faithful. Let God speak to you in these questions. Let me pray for us. We'll uh, take a little bit of time for reflection, and then we'll share communion together in a moment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a faithful God, that you not only promised blessing, but delivered on your promise. And you did it by paying a price we could never really understand, um, the sending of your Son. Lord, I pray that you would... um, break our hearts in a beautiful way, that you would humble our pride in a beautiful way, that you would free us from having to perform and impress, free us from running, from condemnation to simply rest. Lord, your love is the only, only thing powerful enough to free our hearts. And so I pray, Spirit, that you will call our hearts to love you in response. Lord, we love you because you first loved us. And so, Spirit, I pray that you will prompt our hearts to just a broken, joyful, humble, dependent, helpless love that's full of trust, knowing that your love is safe. Your arms are secure. And your purpose is unwavering.